0: Well, good morning to you again. Um, Thank you for coming on this um, magnificent Sunday. It's really pretty here. On the screens, you'll see, once again, you've seen it for many weeks. We're getting toward the end of the book of Ephesians, and uh, we'll turn to another series (coughs) shortly. But the book of Ephesians, well, when we say book, what we really mean is a letter, but it's not really a letter. We call it an epistle because it's a really long letter. Um, can you imagine getting one this long? It was given by the Apostle Paul to a church, the church of Ephesus, and probably that church was meant, was designed to share it with a lot of other churches. What they would have done is they would have, someone would have stood in front of the people and read, read it probably several times over. It was an oral culture. They would not have had copies of it because probably many people or most people could not read. They couldn't have owned a Bible. They haven't, they, people haven't been able to own a Bible until not long ago it was way too expensive to own a Bible, and nor could they read. So the early church was accustomed to listening. They listened, and they heard what the Apostle Paul had written to them specifically from God. Today, we trust that uh, we will be listeners, and we can hear what God has to say to us from this book, the theme of which is, we are in Him. That's the, the New Testament word for Christian, it hardly ever uses the word Christian. A Christian is someone that is in Christ that means what Christ did for us we we participate in it because of who he is and what he's done and then Christ is in us and now our job is to represent him and to resemble him not indivi- well individually but mainly as a group of people he's the head we're the body of Christ. but one of the um, the, the very, very popular kind of people in our world today are those who are impersonators. Now, I don't suppose, I think last night or over on Saturday nights, most of you are, are you probably go to bed at 8 30 or so so you can be all ready for Sunday morning church. You never see Saturday Night Live, I'm sure. But of course, this is an impersonation of President Bush. This is Steve Bridges. It doesn't look like President Bush is all that um, happy. Um, but that's a pretty good impersonation. This is Reggie Brown. He's, uh, that's not President Obama. That's an impersonator impersonating President um, Obama. And here's Alec Baldwin. I don't know who he's impersonating, but I think he's impersonating a president of some kind there. They are. That's President Trump. Um, we love to see impersonators. Uh, they can exaggerate various features of someone's life and really make it pretty funny. Well, that's what each of these impersonators are doing. But actually, imitation is something we do an awful lot. You've probably heard the phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. When someone imitates you, we're kind of happy, provided what they imitate is good. Sometimes what they imitate is bad. Child (laughs) yells at the child and the child yells back and the child learns to do this, which is not good imitation. This is a little bit better. Probably many, maybe almost all of us in this room who are adults, we've had a child sit on our lap and steer the car as we teach them how to drive. Or um, mom doing her exercises. Here's the baby uh, trying to um, um, imitate mama. I think this is my favorite picture of all. (laughs) Look at the little boy. (laughs) There he is uh, with his hands behind his back, just like these two men as they walk, and this little one like that. James Baldwin wrote this. Children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. Um, as you know, people don't often do what we tell them to do, but they very often will do what we, they see us doing. That's why, as a parent, one of the most important things you can do is watch how you live. It's one thing to say to your children, don't use bad language if you use bad language, because they're not going to follow what you say. They will follow what you do. Imitation is something that we do a lot. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's called The Imitation of Christ. It was written in the 1400s, and next to the Bible, this is the most translated book in the world. The Bible is number one. This is number two. It has been translated into more languages than any other book. By the year 1650, and it was written in the 1400s, by the year 1650, this book had come out with 745 editions. That's how popular it was. This is one of the most popular books in the history of the world called The Imitation of Christ, one of the great classic books. Now, today, we're going to talk about imitation. What we tend to do, as people, is uh, we tend to imitate our culture. The church imitates our culture in remarkably bad ways. But we're not called to imitate our culture, we're called to imitate God. That's our calling. And today, that's what we're going to look at. So, if you have a Bible, our text of Scripture is Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 21. And our theme is, Be imitators of God. This passage of Scripture is a preacher's delight because the first verse tells us what the theme is, and if you miss it, it's impossible to miss it. And then it's going to tell us three characteristics of God that we're supposed to imitate. And the ones we're supposed to imitate are attributes of God. The first one, God is love. And so we're supposed to be people who imitate God's love. Second one is, God is light. That's that's who he is. He cannot stop being light. He is light. He not only created light, he is light. That's his essence. And so we're called to be people who walk in the light. And thirdly, God is wise. It's not something he takes on to himself. That's his essence. He cannot be anything other than wise. And we're called to be people who walk in wisdom. You'll see these three very, very simply as we go through this text of Scripture. Here's the first verse. Here's the theme. Be imitators of God. Like I said before, it is our tendency to imitate other people. We imitate our parents. We imitate our peers. We imitate massively in this society entertainers, sports figures, public figures of all kinds. We imitate the norms Of our culture. I don't know if you know, but one of the most damning things about Christians in America today is the extent to which our morality mirrors that of the culture. There is not a statistical way that Christians in America are different than the non Christians in our society today. Check out the polls. That is horrible. So, what are we doing? We, as Christians in America, are imitating our culture. That's what we're doing. That is not what we're called to do. We're supposed to be imitating God, not the people of our culture who are not following God. Now, why? It says therefore. Therefore means you have to connect it with what's come before. Well, what came before? Well, this is who you are as a Christian. These are the resources God has made available to you. This is what it means to be in Christ. You are inheritors of Christ. You are the envy of of the angels. You are the apple of God's eye. Don't you know who you are? Because of that, we need to be people who imitate our Father. Just like that little boy walking behind, imitating those two men. That's what we're supposed to do with God. Why? Why? Because we're children. What kind of children? Dearly loved children. We're children of the Heavenly Father. So He's the one we're supposed to be imitating. So now today we're going to find out what does it look like to imitate God. The first thing it's going to see is live a life of love. Now, um, I, I, I really got creative figuring out these titles. Look at that. There it is, right in the first line. And live a life of love. If we're going to be imitators of God, the first thing is we will live a life of love. What does love look like? There it is. Just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the model, what love looks like, is centered in Jesus. The essence of love is giving oneself up as a sacrifice to God. Now, we live in a world in which the word love has been used and abused in horrible ways. In America today, love means everything from soup to nuts, everything from ice cream to immorality to intimacy. Love is a word that means nothing anymore. Everything, you love everything. That is not what love is, and that's part of the problem with Christians, is we're imitating, we're stealing the the culture's definition of love, but that's not what love is. Love is... Well, the main word that, that... is the equivalent or the synonym of love, is sacrifice. The main way you want to know what love looks like is the cross. When you love somebody, you choose to sacrifice for their well-being. When I love somebody, that doesn't mean I give them whatever they want. That's not loving. Loving means I am willing to sacrifice so for their well-being. So it depends on what's their well-being. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't have to come to this earth. Jesus didn't have to be mistreated here. Jesus didn't have to live 30 years of his life and no one knew who he was. Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. He chose to do so. Why? He loved us. He gave his life as a sacrifice for us. That's what he did. Now, this is uh, the apostle John, Jesus' best friend. He wrote this. Whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Let's stop right there. I love this last phrase, God is love, because it's... um, I'm going to play a little logical game with you for a minute here. It says God... What? What's the next word? God is love. What is the tense of is? depends on what the meaning of is, is. I heard that somewhere. Only if you're old enough do you know what that is from. Okay, what tense is the word is? Present tense, yes. It says, God is love. Is there ever a time when God was not love? No, not if it's present. God cannot stop being love because God is love. That's his character. That's his nature. That's his... Attributes. God is love. Now, tell me if this is a meaningful statement. Love. Is that a meaningful statement? Okay, if I say to you, love, what does that mean? That's right. It means absolutely nothing. Love means nothing. Love demands what? You can't just say, love. What must you do with that to make it meaningful? It requires an object. You don't love in the abstract. Love requires an object. I love that thing. I love that person. Love demands an object. Now, it says here God is love. That means God has always been love. God eternally is love. Who did he love? Before he made all of the planets 10 trillion, trillion years ago? Who did God love before he made us as human beings? Who did God love before he made the angels? Who did he love? Because love has no meaning if there is not an object. Who, if God is love, who did he love before he created anything? Huh. You know what's required logically? The Trinity. God the Father eternally loved God the Son. God the Son eternally loved God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit eternally loved God the Father and God the Son. It's almost like the fact that God is love logically demands the Trinity. Otherwise, love is meaningless in eternity past. The Bible says God is love. And the model of love is the Trinity. Perfect love for one another. This is what John also says in his uh, epistle. We love because he first loved us. We don't just love in the abstract. We don't love just deep, dig deep down and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and love. We love because we have tasted love, the love of God. Why do we forgive? God doesn't say, oh, just forgive people. He says, no, no, no. You forgive because you have been forgiven by God. We know what it's like to have sinned even grievously and the God of the universe has forgiven our sins. Jesus paid for our sins. We forgive because we know what it is to be forgiven. You don't offer some a forgiveness to somebody else that you have not received from God. There's no offense that someone has done against us that is, not, that is greater than the offenses we've committed against God. That's why we forgive. We should be the world's experts, and I think we are, in forgiveness because we know what it's like to have been forgiven all of our sin by God. Now, the problem with love is it's pretty much meaningless in our society. I love ice cream. I, I love rodeos. I love Sheridan. <laughs> I love my wife. Well, what does love mean? Love requires definition. Because if love does not have some ethical norms behind it, we can find ourselves loving things, quote-unquote loving them, that are, not in our, that are not really love. So here's he starts to define it. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Now, he's writing this to people who live in the hotbed of sexual immorality. Just down the street, I've been there many times, just down the street is the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and there, can you imagine, can you imagine if there was a place here in Sheridan where the people went on Sunday morning to worship God, and as they went to that place to worship God, they were involved in sex with prostitutes, and that is an act of worship. That would be called church growth. You'd have thousands of people. All of Sheridan would show up at church. That's what the Temple of Artemis was like. It was a good thing to go to the temple to be sexually involved with a prostitute of both sexes. That was normal. Now, of course that's going to seep into the church. This is what these people are used to. This is what the society... And remember, this is an act of worship. Can you imagine what that would do to a society? Paul says, no, no, this is not, and, and by the way, these people who are going to the prostitutes, what are they doing there? They're making love. That's what we say, that's what we say in our culture today. They're making love. Paul said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not love. No, there shouldn't even be a hint of that among you. And by the way, sexual immorality here, the word is pornea. That's the Greek word from which we get our English word pornography. It means any kind of sexual immorality is contained in this term or any kind of impurity or greed. Why? These are not proper for God's holy people. That's that's not what it looks like to imitate God. It's not what it looks like at all. We don't, we don't do that. He goes on. Oh, by the way, this is Demosthenes. Um, <clears throat> Demosthenes was a, a, a Greek statesman and orator. Here's what he said Mistresses, we keep for the sake of pleasure. I mean, this is open. I mean, remember, this is the, the norm of the culture. It's like America, or worse concubines for the daily care of our persons, but wives, they just bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. You think that's bad? It's going to get worse. This is Plutarch. Plutarch's lives, remember that? He's a Roman biographer, first century AD. This is the same time he argued that a wife should not be angry if her husband had sexual relations with a slave, but she should see that her husband respected her and did not share debauchery with her. So he could be sexually involved with slaves, but she couldn't. It's like called a double standard, but it gets worse. Here's Cicero, the great Roman orator. He wrote approvingly of the legitimacy of young men having affairs with prostitutes. Prostitution, homosexuality, and bisexuality were common, and slaves were regularly abused sexually. This is their world. This is open. This is right to them. And Paul writes, you may be right for your culture, but we are not in the business of imitating our culture. We're supposed to be imitating the love of God. He goes on. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Come on, Paul. I mean, can you imagine four things that more represent America than sexual immorality, impurity, greed, and coarse language? I mean, that's called America. America. Paul said, no, that may be America. And I'm stunned at how coarse our language, our, our intellect must be going down percentage points a day in America. Our IQ must be down at about zero. It, the people can't come up with better words to describe things than four-letter words. I think, come on, people, aren't we smarter than that? Don't we have a better grasp of the English language than to say, use the same words that are four letters to, to emphasize something? What's wrong with us? course, language has become the norm of our culture now. But he said, no, these are not... This is not what characterizes those who imitate God. We're better with our language. We don't imitate our culture. But remember, the tendency is, our language will imitate our culture. Our sexuality will tend to imitate our culture. Our greed will tend to imitate our culture. But that's not what we're supposed to do. And then this one, I hate this statement. Here's why we shouldn't follow, we shouldn't imitate our society. For this you can be sure of. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I don't like that verse at all. Now, um, is there anyone here today that's immoral? Um, let's allow all of the immoral people raise our hands. Uh-oh, I've got mine up. How about impure? Uh, any? No, if you, you, all you wonderful people don't need to, but impure people, come on, raise your hand with me, all you impure. How about greedy? No American's ever been greedy, so that one, uh, we can keep our hands in our pockets on that one. Are you sure? Materialism is the norm of our society. Okay, no inheritance. We're done. That's pretty sad. Who, who gets to go to heaven, by the way? Well, last I knew, there's only one kind of person that gets to go to heaven, someone who's perfect. It's the only person that gets to go to heaven. Did you qualify? I certainly don't. I'm so far from that, it's unbelievable. I don't qualify. But if I'm not mistaken, if you're 99% perfect, you'd ruin heaven. The only way heaven can ever work is if the people who are there are perfect. How are you going to get there? Because the truth is, we are immoral, impure, greedy people who have coarse mouths. That's who we are by nature and by imitation. That's who we are. But God says those kind of people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Only perfect people get to go to heaven. So how are we going to get there? That's the genius of the cross. Our righteousness comes not from ourselves. It comes from Jesus. I was reading some Muslim uh, writings today. and said, how can the death of one person cover the sins of all people? They were laughing at Jesus. And I want to say, if you know who Jesus is, he's not just a person, a human being. He's the God-man he made every human being that's ever lived. He made us. And he's worth 10 gazillion times more than all of us combined. His one death can suffice for all of us because of who he is. And he is willing to impute his righteousness to whom? People who refuse to idolize themselves. The only root into heaven, is on our knees. We say, oh God, I have no business being in heaven. I have, I'm i not only am a sinner by choice and by action and by omission, I am a sinner by nature. And I have no hope in this world that I could ever stop that. My only hope is that you could give your righteousness to me. One of my favorite verses is in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5. God made him who had no sin, to become sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That's genius. Do you know what I think is the greatest danger with what's going on with sexuality and impurity and language, etc., in our culture today? It's not so much those things. It's that when you remove item after item after item from the sin list. Pretty soon, you get down to nothing. And all the people will think is, you got the right one, baby, when he got me. I, I, I'm i good. I'm good with God. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being is to think that we're good with God because that's called the worship of of oneself, and that will keep you out of heaven. No one who worships themselves and their own righteousness has any inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what the latest poll that I've read, the numbers are? Do you know how many Americans believe they're going to hell? I'll tell you the latest poll that I've read. One out of 200 Americans. So that means... As you walk through Sheridan the rest of this day, you will not lay eyes on one person who thinks they're going to hell. So what does everyone think? Everyone thinks, I'm good with God. That's a problem. Because the truth is, none of us are good with God. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our only hope is His righteousness. My only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ can be credited to my account. And then I could stand before God perfect, and I won't ruin heaven because I will walk in the righteous. I will be clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are people who are to imitate God. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Judgment is real. God's judgment is real. And there are basically two camps. There's the camp of idolatry, where basically you worship yourself and your own righteousness. Or the camp where you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those are the only two options. One, well, both of them are going to get God's God's wrath. Both camps will experience the full weight of God's wrath. This one, you'll have to take it yourself. This one, it was taken when Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God on the cross of Calvary. He took the wrath of God for us. I want to be in that camp. I hope you do too. I want the righteousness of Jesus Christ to clothe me. Not my own righteousness, because it's pretty paltry, I can assure you. Richard Niebuhr, some years ago, he described America, and this is the American church that he described. I hope this will never be First Baptist Church. Here it is. Here's John 3.16 for the American church. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. There it is. That's called... I guess Minnesota nice or something like that I don't know what you call that one but it's nonsense it's garbage but he said that's how he described the American Christian scene oh we teach a God who's just lovey-dovey no wrath and we don't really have sin we're all good and the kingdom oh there is no judgment God doesn't judge anybody and we like Jesus because he's a nice guy but we take away the cross That's a pretty sad commentary on us. Well, he ends this section by saying, don't you be partners with them. Don't do it. Walk in love. Then live as children of light. Real simple here. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Remember, God is love, and now it's going to tell us God is light. Now, what does it mean to live as a child of light? Well, here it is. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. So, for someone to walk in light means that we live a life of goodness, The righteousness in which we're clothed by Jesus now is part of our lifestyle. We live in truth, and the purpose of our life now is to please the Lord. We want Jesus to be pleased with us. That's a pretty good way to go. How do you do that? Well, first of all, we have to not, we have to fight our default mode. Our default mode is to imitate our culture. And our culture is not walking in truth and righteousness and all. It's walking in quite the opposite. We, have, we don't walk in that. Rather, we expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed to the light becomes visible, for it is the light that makes everything visible. That's why it says, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we're now to walk as children of light. First of all, we walk in love. Now we walk in light. We live our lives uh, in the open. I I think someone wrote this, nothing good happens after 2 a.m. I would say maybe maybe midnight. (laughs) Nothing good. So much evil. Well, evil takes place in the dark. And that's why so much bad stuff happens when it's dark. You don't do bad things in the open so everyone can see you. You do them in secret, in the dark. And it says that's not what... We live such that our uh, lives are more or less open books. None of us live that way, as you know. We have all thi- all have things we'd like to hide. I certainly do, and I'm sure you do, too. But we're people who are willing to walk into the light of God, being exposed for who we really are, which means the warts are visible as well as the flaws and the failures and the foibles. But we walk in the light because we're not afraid of light. Well, then it ends by the third thing, is now we live wisely. This is how the book of Romans ends. This is the last verse in Romans. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So not only is God a God of love, a God of light, but He's also a God of wisdom. And the wisdom is going to um, be involved with how we use our time. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. You know, we The commodity that every single one of us have in common is time. We have the same number of minutes. Every single one of us, no matter how rich or how poor you are, no matter what your intelligence is, or it doesn't matter, what your personality, we all have the same amount of time. We can squander our time or we can use it well. Obviously, God wants us to use our time well because our time is limited. The days are evil. so. Here's what to do. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. If we want to use our time well, we need to do what God would want us to do with our time. And remember, there are only two things that will last for eternity, and these should be the two that we devote most of our time to. Number one, the Word of God, and number two, people. Human beings and the Word of God are eternal The most important place we can place our time is with the lives of people. So what do we do with people? Well, the first thing is, don't spend your time with spirits. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Here's two contrasts. Do not give your life to spirits. Give your life to the Holy Spirit. Now, what will that look like if you give your life to spirits? I'll tell you what it will look like. You will say all kinds of stupid things you wish you had never said. Or, if you give your life to the Holy Spirit, you will say all kinds of things you wish you had said. You will speak. You will sing. You will give thanks. You know, by the way, the main, the main, the main indication of the filling of the spirit is your tongue but not speaking in tongues it's how we use this tongue is it used to to say things that are not true in god's word is it used to gripe or to express our gratitude to god is it used to express the joy of our heart or the evil That's inside of us. It is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth will speak. The main impact of the Holy Spirit's filling in a person's life is how we use our tongue. And I don't mean speaking in tongues. I mean how we use our tongue to worship God and to build up other people and to express the gratitude of our heart. And one more thing, and submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. You want to know what a spirit-filled person looks like? Well, two main things. One, their mouth. And second, how they treat people. What do we do with our mouths? Do we use our mouths in ways that are destructive? Or do we use our mouths in ways that are observable means of lifting people up to follow God in Jesus? And do we use our lives to submit to other people so that we can build them up in Christ? That's how you know that we're filled with the Spirit. And so, three very simple things, but incredibly difficult to, um, to carry out. Live a life of love. We want to imitate God, we have to be people whose lives are characterized by love, but a particular kind of love, the kind of love that Christ demonstrated. That's the kind that we need. What does that love look like? He gave himself up for us. We give ourselves up for other people because we live lives of love. First Baptist Church and the other precious churches in this town should be the main crucibles in which you see people giving their lives for the benefit of others. We should model that in this community because we lead lives of love, because we imitate God. We walk in the light. We're people who, as we walk in the light, if you walk in the light, and and I do, the first thing I'm going to see is I'm going to see who I really am. We're not afraid to tell people, well, you know, me too. I sin done many many things wrong continue to do so but when we walk in the light we're exposed and we're willing to admit the truth about ourselves without blame shifting we don't say well my mother my mother my dad oh it was my poverty that i grew up in of course those things affect us but they're not excuses we walk in the light and then that light starts to transform us and then we people who walk wisely we know our time is limited on this planet So we use especially our mouths for good. Some years ago, not many years ago, maybe five, a a friend of mine, one of my dearest friends, he's my mentor, he and some uh, friends of his went to North Carolina. I said South Carolina in the first service and someone came up and corrected me. They went to North Carolina to Charlotte because there is a is the center, the Billy Graham Center, called the Cove in Charlotte. They went there. They went there because there was like a seniors conference, and um, these people, uh, George Beverly Shea, who's on the right, he was over 100 at the time, and then Cliff Barrows, who's on the left, he was in his upper 80s at the time. They were speaking, and they were speaking about the, the, the goodness of God to them in their lives. And if you know, this, three, this team of three, that's Billy Graham in the middle. And Billy Graham at the time was in his 90s. 80s, 90s, and over 100. Well, they were talking about, they were answering questions and sharing how good God had been to them throughout their long lives, and all of a sudden, everything was quiet. They opened the back doors, and they wheeled in Billy Graham. And he went up and joined them. And now the three of them, these three giants, upper 80s, mid-90s, and low 100s, they got up on the stage and the three of them sang a trio together. George shake shaken, still sang beautifully. He could. They both died now, the two on the end. Billy Graham is still alive. They sang. Can you imagine? My friend Don, who was there, they said, we're just bawling our eyes out. Everyone's bawling. As you see these three giants singing together. You know what they sang? This little light of mine. George Beverly Shea could still sing. Cliff Barrows could still sing. Billy Graham cannot. <laughs> <laughs> this is what they said. So you know what? They got to the place, Don't Let Satan, and then they stopped, and Billy Graham went, <laughs> <laughs> That's all he could do. And then the part, hide it under a bushel, and then they stopped, and they looked at Billy Graham, and he said, no. (laughs) That's all he could do. But these three giants, in the last days of their lives, the song they chose to sing was this little light of mine. And so, in honor of these three saints, two of these three have gone on to heaven, let's stand and sing this little light of mine. And by the way, we have to be Sunday school people today, so it means you've got to do it with the hand motions. Because <laughs> if you don't, you're not a good Sunday school person. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, Let it shine. Let it shine, Let it shine. Don't let Satan f- it out. I'm gonna let it shine. Don't let Satan f- it out. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine, Let it shine. Hide it under a bushel i'm gonna let it shine hide it under a bushel i'm gonna let it, shine. let it shine 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 till jesus comes i'm gonna let it shine let it shine till jesus comes i'm gonna let it shine let it shine let it shine let it shine you just said it you just sang it now we get to do it we are god's children we're called to imitate him and as such we live a life of love Because God is love. Because we're God's children and God is a God of light, we walk in the light. We will be exposed. That will hurt. But we choose to walk in the light. And because we're God's children, we walk wisely because God is wise. He's the only wise God. And we use our time wisely. And so may God now enable you as you leave this place to let your light shine as one who loves one who lives in the light, and one who lives wisely. God bless you.